Good morning, First Free. How are you this morning? Good. Hey, if you don't know me, my name is Andrew and this is Carly. We're so excited to be with you to worship your joining online. Thanks for joining our church family this morning. We're excited for just this service and to step into all that God has for us. I don't know where you're coming in this morning or what challenges you've been facing this week, but I know and I believe with all my heart that God is stronger than anything that comes against his people. So as we get ready for worship, let's stand together and let's declare this truth out from Romans 8, verse 31. Would you read this with me together? Here we go. If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Let's read that again together. If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Amen, let's sing together. Water you turned into wine. The water you turned into wine. You opened the eyes of the blind. There's no one like you. There's none like you. Into the darkness you shine. Out of the ashes we rise. There's no one like you. There's none like you. Our God, we sing. Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. God, you are higher than many other. Our God is healer. Awesome and power. darkness you shine and out of the ashes we rise there's no one like you there's none like you oh, we say our God is greater our God is stronger God you are higher than many other our God is healer
us. Amen. Jesus Christ is the center of our worship, and it's so important that we magnify him and focus on him because Jesus reveals who God is to us. He reveals the strength of God's power, and he reveals, he reveals the depths of his love for us. Let's listen to the strength of that love for us as Carly reads to us from Psalm 36. Your unfailing love, O Lord, is as vast as the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches beyond the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. Your justice like the ocean depths. How precious is your unfailing love, O oh God. All humanity finds shelter in the shadow of your wings, for you are the fountain of life, the light by which we see. We, we see Jesus' love for us. We see it in the heights of the mountains, the depths of the sea. We see it most clearly in Jesus when he died for the cross, he died on the cross for us. He showed us the heights and depths of God's love. And if you're like me in the difficulties of life, you can lose sight of that and, and lose track of just how much God loves us and how much he cares for us. And we need Jesus and what he did for us on the cross to be that light that reminds us of God's love. So as we keep singing together, church, wherever you're at this morning, is fix your mind and your heart on Jesus. Fix your mind and your heart on the cross and be reminded of how much he loves us. How deep the Father's love for us. Sing together. How fast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure 
stand before you now, not, not as perfect people who, who have it all together, God, but as broken people, as struggling people who are walking through life, as people who are struggling with sin. And God, we thank you for that sacrifice on the cross. We turn our hearts and our minds to that now. Thank you for the way that cleanse, cleanses us, purifies us so that we, we can stand in your presence free and, and unashamed and forgiven. Help us to be with you in this service, God. Would you teach us? 
Would you speak to us? Would you grow us so that our lives could be devoted fully to you? And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Your
Church, as we go, let's remember that we never walk alone. In every trial, God is faithful. If you'd like to give, you can do so online at efree.org give or with the ushers in the back of the room. Thank you for supporting what God is doing here. Our prayer team is available up front if you need prayer or online at efree.org connect. Have a great week and we'll see you next Sunday.
Wow, that was an awesome time of worship. Thank you for your loud singing. It's so encouraging to us to just be a part of a body of Christ that loves to worship God together and to sing about his wounds that have paid our ransom and allowed us to have a transformed life because of what Jesus does for us. It's really, it's really incredible. And we're so thankful for it. And it, it leads to a lot of exciting things for us. So um, I'm gonna try to transition us now into a little bit of an announcement time. And that's why Kevin is up here with me. And you think about what Jesus has done for us in our life, and we want everybody to know about that. We want that to, to impact every aspect of our lives. And one of the things the Bible tells us that the church is supposed to do is to develop leaders. In 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, uh, Paul tells Timothy, entrust these things to faithful people who will teach others also. And the idea is that we as a church need to be teaching people, but not just teaching people, teaching people to teach people. We need to be raising up influencers who will influence the world for Jesus in, in every aspect of life. And there's a lot of scripture we can point to to talk about that. We take that very seriously here. That's why one of our distinctive values is leadership is learned. The idea that we think everybody can grow as a leader, grow as an influencer for Jesus. And one important aspect of that, for us at least internally at the church, is that we wanna be developing the future leaders of the church. We wanna make sure that as God is, is touching people's hearts, calling them into ministry, lots of different kinds of ministry, that we're creating opportunities for him to use us as a place where those people will grow and learn how to serve him in the context of the church. And so that's what I wanna talk about with you a little bit today and why Kevin is up here. Kevin is our executive pastor of operations and leadership development. And right now we're talking about that leadership development in part. And Kevin, why don't you tell us what the church has been doing to develop leaders at First Free? Yeah, so one of the things that we've been doing, I mean, we've got a number of different development uh, avenues. If you're volunteering in a ministry, there should be development going on. If you're engaged in ministries outside, there should be in, uh, development going on. And if you've got questions about that, just reach out. Um, I want to talk specifically about our intern program. And one of the things that we do every year is invite young men and women who are in college to come and spend their summer at First Free working in one of our ministries. And we've had ministry interns in um, student ministries, we've had them in our worship ministry, we've had them in uh, technical ministry, and this year for the first year, we'll actually have two young women who are in college join us for the summer to work in our Kid Connection ministry. And it's just a great opportunity for each of these young men and women to get a chance to see what it's like to work in a church, in a ministry, on staff, and to explore um, in, a, in a very real sense over a concentrated period of time what God might be doing in their lives. I was talking to uh, Andrew Miller uh, earlier. He led us in worship this morning. In 2011, Andrew was a student intern at First Tree, and I think that's worked out pretty well. Yeah, I would say so. And we have a lot of great interns. We love uh, our interns. They do real ministry work here. We want to take things to the next level and give opportunities for greater development, longer term development. So what are we starting to make that happen? Yeah, thanks. You can learn a lot in three months, but it's still a pretty short period of time. And so this year, we're really excited to add First Free's first ministry resident. And the distinction between an intern and a resident has to do with both the work that we're asking them to do and providing them for, and also the length of time. So an internship, you're helpers in ministry, and you are here for three months usually. Um, our ministry resident program will be a two-year program, and it will involve um, leading and running segments of a ministry. In this case, um, the ministry resident will be working in student ministries. Um, 
His name is Caleb. He will be joining us in mid-June. And between now and then, he's going to graduate from Taylor University with a ministry degree, and he's going to marry Haley. And so he's, he doesn't have anything going on in the next few weeks. Um, but we're excited to have him here. We know Caleb because last year, between his junior and senior years at Taylor, he was actually a student intern with us. And so that's another thing that we see developing out of that intern program. I have seen this trend recently where we, we are bringing on these young people and they're getting married right as they're coming on and joining our team here. Is that, is that something that we could promote about this program? Like if you're, no? You know, we can, we can explore it and expand okay. it. I may not be the best person to do that for you, but okay. it's, it's okay. <laughs> we'll keep it in mind. So um, there are lots of exciting things about this from the staff side, and it's kind of a little bit of a peek behind the curtain for everybody watching yeah. this. Is there any way that they can be involved and, and help out in this process? There is, absolutely. There are two ways. I have to get Matchmaker from Fiddler on the Roof out of my head now after you planted it there. Um, there are two ways. The first way, and the most important and the most comprehensive for all of us, uh, comes from an organization that we're working with that does residencies around the country. And so this is our first time. We want to get it right. And so we've been working with them and saying, okay, help us understand what are the steps, what are the, what are the best practices. And, and they said the most important thing is that Caleb and Haley come to find First Free Church as their home church. It's very easy, it's a two-year assignment. It's very easy for them to feel like, okay, this is just a job or I'm just passing through. And, and what our partners tell us is that those residents who are embraced and become part of the community here and the family um, are the ones that have the best experience and go on to do um, the, the most confident ministry even after their residency. The second thing is more specific. And we want them to feel at home here. We want it to be a residency. The root word of residency is residence. And we are looking for a host family for at least the first three months of Caleb and Haley's time here. And so I know I'm not talking to everybody, but I know that I'm possibly talking to somebody who says, you know what, we would love to host a young married couple who is stepping into their first ministry role um, and, and provide that home. Um, this is, this is a, a key need that we believe God is going to provide over the next few weeks. Yeah, if you think that God's calling you to do something like that, please see one of us after the service. We'd love to talk with you more. And just please be praying about this. We think this is important for the future of the church. It's no secret that in this country in particular, the, the evangelical church has experienced a lot of problems, and the pandemic, I think, accelerated a lot of that. And, uh, and younger people are so important for the future of the church. So this is a big investment, a big commitment that we are making to make sure that we are want, wanting to be used by God to raise up the future leaders of the church. So please be a part of that. Be praying with us. And support Caleb when, when he gets here as well. Thanks, Kevin.
It's different than a normal kind of bumper video that we would do before a message because it's got a little bit of a darker feel to it, but I think that's really appropriate for the book of Ruth. This is a story of someone who's been through incredible tragedy and, and difficult circumstances and trying to figure out how do you move on when it seems like the bottom falls out in your life. And maybe you've been there, maybe you're there right now, where you feel like, wow, there's so much wrong in my life right now, so discouraged, so much that troubles me. Where do I go from here? How do I move on? And that's really where we find Ruth and Naomi at this point in the story. So if you've got your Bible, you can open up to the book of Ruth. We're going to spend most of our time there this morning. Last week, we started this new study, and it's a fun one. I'm enjoying it. I enjoy all the behind-the-scenes work to kind of research it and, and prepare for it. And of course, I, I always learn a lot more than I'm actually able to share with you here. But last week, we talked about this guy named Elimelech. And Elimelech left his homeland of Bethlehem and Israel to go around the Dead Sea to a place called Moab and take his family there because there was no food left in Israel. There was a famine that was probably the result of the sin of the people and, and judgment during the time of the judges, God's judgment on the, on the land. And so they moved to this place called Moab, which is modern-day Jordan. And while he's there, over the next 10 years, he passes away. Then his wife Naomi is left there with her two sons and the Moabite women that they marry, but then the two sons pass away. And none of them ever had any kids, the two daughters-in-law. So now there are three widows left in Moab, Naomi and the two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And Naomi hears that there's food back in the land of Israel. So she decides to take them back, and along the way, Orpah decides she's going to actually stay in Moab, so she goes back there and, and decides to return to her family of origin and to the pagan gods that she used to worship. But Ruth clings to Naomi and says, I will never leave you. In fact, I want to show you this just to kind of overlap between the two weeks. I want to go back and just review a little bit of last week so you can see this in Ruth chapter 1, look at verse 16. Ruth says, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. And when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. And in these couple of verses here, we see a little glimpse into Ruth's character. You see, she has this opportunity to turn her back on Naomi and, and, and every, every right to do so, you would think. I mean, to return back to her family, her mother, her father, her siblings, her cousins, all of that to go back there. Uh, but she says, no, I'm going to stay with you, Naomi. And in fact, I'm going to continue to worship the God that you have taught me about. I'm going to be with you and be with your people and, and be with your God and follow him until the day that I die. And so we see this little glimpse into Ruth's character here, and we're going to see a lot more of it as we continue exploring. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Ruth chapter 1, verse 19 is where we're going to be. And then we're going to go all the way through chapter 2, verse 19 as well, and continue on in the next step of this story. So Ruth chapter 1, verse 19. So the two of them continued on their journey. And when they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The women asked. Now, what you learn about this is that Naomi was greeted warmly, right? She has friends there who remember her from a decade ago, and they're excited to see her. They're excited by their arrival. They can't believe it. Wow, she's back. This is amazing. She, she must have been a warm and, and caring person, someone that they loved to be around. And Naomi, the word, the name actually means pleasant or sweet, her name means sweet, Naomi does, but she doesn't feel that anymore. So if you look at the next verse, she says, don't call me Naomi. Instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has been very bitter to me. 
Mara, the name Mara means bitter. So she's saying, don't call me sweet anymore, Naomi. Don't call me that. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Why? Because the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. That word Mara also means anguishing or pungent. It can mean pungent. If you've experienced tragedy in your life, maybe you felt like Naomi at different points where you just kind of get bitter. And if you allow that to continue over time and let that bitterness just reside in your heart and there's no forgiveness there, eventually you will become pungent to those around you. Maybe you've known someone who has just been bitter for a very long time and they just, they just, it affects everything around them, their relationships, their friends, their family. You just sort of know, we have a word for it. We call them a curmudgeon. Someone who's just bitter for so long that eventually it's just like that's their reputation and they're just kind of pungent and you just want to say, let, you know, let it go at some point. You can't hold on to that forever, but that's what the word Mara means. So why is Naomi or Mara, as she now identifies, why does she think she's so bitter? She says in verse 21, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Notice she is just straight up blaming God here. The Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi? Why call me sweet when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? I don't think the author here, which is probably Samuel, could have made it any clearer how bitter and frustrated and angry Naomi is and how much she blames and accuses God, right? It's God's fault as far as she's concerned. Now, as we were going through a, a preaching brainstorm meeting a little over a week ago, one of the people in that meeting said, you know, reading Ruth, I get so frustrated by Naomi because it's like if she could only see what's about to happen, if she could only see what God is doing, if she could only look at the big picture, but she's just so focused on what she's lost. She's so focused on the tragedy that has hit her. She can't get over that. And she's not paying attention to any blessings around her. She's just such a, a bitter, miserable person. I get frustrated with her and I understand that. I can relate to that. On the other hand, I'm kind of thankful that Scripture includes stories like this in the Bible, stories where we don't see people on their best behavior, stories where we don't see them all polished up and shiny in the Instagram version of themselves, but we see the real raw, frustrated, angry emotions of someone who in this case is, is sinning in their blame against God, but at the same time, this is a real human emotion and something that I'm sure a lot of us struggle with. God is all-knowing, and God is all-powerful, and so God is somehow involved in this situation, and God, why did you cause this, or why did you allow this to happen in my life? We have no indication from the text that, that God caused the death of Elimelech or of her two sons, Malon and Kilion. We don't know for sure how exactly that all came about, and your theology may play a little bit into what you believe about that, but at the very least, God knew it was going to happen, and he allowed it to happen. And so in some sense, Naomi is, is right to say, hey, God is involved here. God is somehow, is somehow involved in this process. And, and, and I know that, that he is in, has control of everything and the power to do anything, but he's either allowed this to happen or he's caused this to happen. And what do I do with that? And Naomi's response is to say, I blame God. It's your fault, God. God has caused this to happen. He's brought this tragedy into my life. And Jesus Jesus tells us that God knows all the bad stuff that happens. He says in Matthew chapter 10, um, Matthew chapter 10, he says, uh, let me get this up here. What is the price of two sparrows? One copper coin. But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. God knows all the bad stuff that happens in our life. He knows everything. He's, he's aware of every bit of it. So Naomi's response to that is to say, well, then I just blame God. 
Job had a very different response, if you remember. Job was a guy who lost everything. He actually lost a lot more than Naomi did. And, and what did Job say? We can see in Job chapter 1, verse 21, the Bible says, uh, Job says this, the Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. You see, Job had the exact opposite response. Naomi said, I know God's involved, and I blame him for this. And Job said, I know God's involved, and he has every right to do this. God gives and God takes away. Praise the name of the Lord. Naomi says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Almighty has sent this tragedy to me. You can just sense that bitterness that she has in her heart in all of this. And it is frustrating. But at the same time, it's a, it's a human natural response, not to excuse it, but it's one that I'm sure at all, at all of us at some point in our life have, have been through a difficult time. And God, why are you doing this? What is going on here? And I think we can learn something really incredible from, what, from Naomi's experience here. We can actually kind of take a step back from her story and her picture, and we can do this through a little exercise right now. Sometimes when preachers ask a question, it's rhetorical, and they're going to answer it, and you just have to sit there and listen. And other times when preachers ask a question, they actually want a response. This is going to be option two. So here is my question for you. If you were to make a list for Naomi, of the things that she has to be thankful for, to rejoice in, what would you put on that list? Ruth. She has this amazing daughter-in-law who has decided to follow the faith of Yahweh, the God of Israel, and she's come all the way back with her, and she's stuck by her through everything. Awesome. Ruth. Yeah, what a great thing to be thankful for. What else? Her friends, she comes back to Bethlehem and they welcome her. It's been 10 years, but they still remember her. And they're like, oh, it's Naomi. We're so excited to see you. What else? Her relationship with God. Yeah, in fact, you know she still values that in some sense because when she's about ready to head back to Israel, what does she say? The Lord has ended the famine and brought, um, um, brought food back to Israel. So she knows that God is blessed back in Israel and she, she attributes that to him. What else? Food, yeah, there's food. This is the, the time of the barley harvest. And, and finally, the, the famine is over and, and produce is back and they're able to eat and go back to her homeland. I mean, what an awesome thing. What else? Her health, her life. Safe travel home, absolutely. They made it. They finally made it. She comes, she shows up in Bethlehem, this long journey from Moab. It can be dangerous at times. You can get all kinds of sickness and and robbers along the way and everything, they've made it there safely. And they're like, Naomi, welcome back. She's like, call me bitter. Just call me bitter. I'm so bitter. They're like, well, you did have a safe trip. You're here. You're alive. No, I'm just bitter. That's what I want to be known as now. She has all these things to be thankful for. But instead, she is just focused on what's gone wrong in her life. And, and come on, isn't that what we do all the time? I was talking with someone last week who's going through a very difficult season of life. And, and he said that right now the way it feels is you just can't see the forest for the trees. It's like, yeah, I know there's good stuff there, but I can't see it because of what's right in front of me. And it sort of blocks our vision. If we would just take a step back, we'd be able to see all of God's blessings in the middle of tragedy. And that's the first lesson for you. If you want to write something down and take something away today, it's when you live in bitterness, you miss seeing God's blessings. When you live in bitterness, you miss seeing God's blessings. How many of you know how the story of Ruth ends, generally speaking? You kind of have a good idea of how this ends. Good or bad? It's pretty good. 
But does Naomi know this now? Can Naomi even imagine a good outcome to this story? No, she wants to change her name. She now identifies as Mara, bitter, because as far as she's concerned, there's nothing good going on at all. But we know there were blessings there that she was missing. Those blessings are about to get a lot better because she's about to be reintroduced to a man named Boaz. This is in Ruth chapter 2. So we're moving into the next chapter. Ruth chapter 2, verse 1 says, Now there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. That's going to become important um, down the road in a future message. That, that relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech, we'll get into that later. One day, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it. I love the fact that the author here, again, probably Samuel, wants to remind us, hey, Ruth is an outsider. She's a Moabite. He does this multiple times. Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite. Remember, she's an outsider. She doesn't belong here. But look how amazing she turns out to be. So Ruth wants to go out into the harvest field, pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it. And Naomi replied, all right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. And as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. While she was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, he said. The Lord bless you, the harvesters replied. Then Boaz asked his foreman, who... Is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? And the foreman replied, she is the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She has been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes rest in the shelter. Now, there are a couple things that we need to know about Ruth. And they're going to lead to a couple of principles that we can take away from this lesson. So something to know about Ruth and something to learn from her story. The first thing to know about Ruth is that she wasn't afraid to be open about her need. She wasn't afraid to reveal her need. You think about it. The act of going out into these fields to try to pick up all the leftover stuff after it's already been harvested revealed to everyone around this person is poor, this person is destitute. It was a big deal for her to go out there and say, Yep, we are so poor that I've got to go scavenge for grain like all the, the poor people do. This is not the type of life Naomi had when she was in Bethlehem before. And so Ruth actually asks her permission. Is it okay if I go and do this? And they're at a point where Naomi has to say, yes, go ahead. That's how much we need this. But she's okay with revealing. Ruth is okay with going out there and doing this, what the poor people do. They, they I'm sure, had never done anything like this before. But she's okay with doing that. And it's going to lead to some incredible things happening in her life because of her willingness to just expose the fact that she has a need. It's her willingness to get out there and show that need that it leads to all the other stuff that's going to happen in the book of Ruth. And I just want to pause on that for a minute because I think there's something valuable that we often struggle with here. I'm going to go ahead and give you the principle and then unpack it a little bit. Here's the principle. When you hide your need, you miss God's opportunity to care for you through others. When you hide your need, you miss God's opportunity to care for you through others. When I was a kid, I used to watch this show called Bonanza. It was reruns. Has anybody ever seen Bonanza or Ponderosa, it was called for a while? When Bonanza first came out in the 60s, it was kind of a, a fresh sort of revolutionary type of show because up to that point, all the Westerns were all about action and adventure and rescue. 
And so there was always, you know, somebody to rescue or, or some, some adventure to go on or something like that. And, and that's what the storyline focused on. Well, Bonanza was different because Bonanza focused on like cultural issues and personal issues and family relationships. And it was a really unique show in its time. And one of the things that was just a recurring theme on Bonanza, which is what made me think of it as I was studying Ruth this week, is it always seemed like there was someone or some family who had a tremendous need but was really prideful and stubborn and would not be open and honest about that need. And so they would do other things to hide their need. They would steal. They would do all kinds of stuff that would cause all sorts of problems and shenanigans. And of course, the Cartwrights, the wealthy Cartwrights on the Ponderosa Ranch were always sitting there waiting and being like, we can just meet your need. We can just help you. We'll just take care of it. You can stay with us. You can have this. You can do whatever. The Cartwrights are always there ready to help them. And the people are always like, no, no, no. I want to do it on my own. I'm so stubborn. I remember as a kid watching these and thinking, man, these people are idiots. Just be honest about your need. Just tell, if, and the show could have been over in five minutes if you would have just walked up to Paul Cartwright and said, hey, I need a thousand bucks. He'd be like, okay. And that would have, it would have been done. It wouldn't have been much of a show. And I realized as I got older, like, oh, no, that's exactly how we are. That's exactly how we are. All of us want to put a good face out there. We don't want to reveal the needs that we have. But when we hide our needs, we miss God's opportunity to care for us through others. You know, that's how it usually happens. It's usually not just God just drops something in your mailbox. It's he works through people. We are his hands. We are his feet. And so God wants to care for your needs through other people, but that's not going to happen if you're not open about those needs. When we hide our needs, we miss God's opportunity to care for us through others. Something about what Ruth is doing right now is helpful for us to understand. And, and that's the second thing I want you to know about Ruth. So she was a hard worker. She was a hard worker. This was noticed by the foreman, the field supervisor. He told Boaz this, man, she has been hard at work, except for a really short break. She has been working hard in the fields. She is not sitting around waiting for somebody to just give her something. She's out there doing the work. She is willing to work hard, even gathering that leftover grain that's in the fields. That's, that's even harder work. The easy thing is, is when it hasn't been harvested yet to just go get it off the stalks, but to dig through the, the, the stuff on the ground and try to pick up whatever grain has been lost and forgotten, the stuff that the workers didn't care enough to pick up because there just wasn't much of it. That is hard work. But she's out there. She's doing it. And this was actually a part of God's welfare program for the people of Israel. You read about this back in Leviticus chapter 19. God told the people, when you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields. Just leave, that, leave the outskirts in place. And do not pick up with a harvester's drop. drop. He says the same thing about other stuff. Um, it is the same with your grape crop. Do not strip every last bunch of grapes from the vines and do not pick up the grapes that fall to the ground. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. See, God wants his people to care for the poor. This is kind of an ingenious plan here. This is something that doesn't take away from anyone's dignity or anyone's responsibility. You've got to have some skin in the game. You've got to be willing to contribute. You've got to be willing to work hard. If it's just sit back and we'll bring it to your doorstep, well, then there's, there's no skin in that game. There's no working hard for it. And so there's, there's character that is lost and dignity that is lost in the middle of that. God's plan is really ingenious, which we shouldn't expect anything different. But a hard worker in God's plan is going to show up. They're going to have enough food for their family. They're going to have to work for it still. But then what's going to happen if they show themselves to be a hard worker? They're going to get noticed, just like Ruth was noticed. And the field supervisor is going to see and go, wow, that person works hard. And before you know it, they're going to have a job. 
and they're going to be able to work themselves out of poverty. So it's just kind of an interesting thing to see how God set up his welfare program so that people who are poor and foreigners who don't have a lot of assets, resources, can still be cared for, can still have enough to survive, but not enough to keep them there, enough to help them work their way out of poverty. It's a really interesting thing. And it's what we see with Ruth. Ruth is a hard worker, and so she gets noticed because of this. And the field supervisor shares with Boaz what's going on, and here's what Boaz does. He he goes over, he talks to Ruth, and he says, listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather your grain. Don't go to any other fields. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. Now, the thing is, normally you wouldn't find enough in one field. So you had to bounce from field to field to field, and eventually you got enough to feed your family. And he's saying, don't do that. You can get everything you need right here. He says, see which part of the field they are harvesting and then follow them. I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water they have drawn from the well. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness? She asked. I am only a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz replied. But I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. I hope I continue to please you, sir, she replied. You have comforted me by speaking so kindly to me, even though I am not one of your workers. At mealtime, Boaz called to her, come over here and help yourself to some food. You can dip your bread in the sour wine. So she sat with his harvesters. And Boaz gave her some roasted grain to eat. She ate all she wanted and still had some left over. When Ruth went back to work again, Boaz ordered his young men, let her gather grain right among the sheaves without stopping her and pull out some heads of barley from the bundles and drop them on purpose for her. Let her pick them up and don't give her a hard time. So Ruth gathered barley there all day. And when she beat out the grain that evening, it filled an entire basket. That's about 30 pounds of grain that she collected. She carried it back into town and showed it to her mother-in-law. Ruth also gave her the roasted grain that was left over from her meal. Where did you gather all this grain today? Naomi asked. Where did you work? May the Lord bless the one who helped you. So Ruth told her mother-in-law about the man in whose field she had worked. She said, the man I work with today is named Boaz. Now there's a a lot there and it leads up to an exciting thing that we're going to cover in a future message. But I just want to 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 just give you an overview of what went on in this passage because it's so beautiful. There's so much stuff happening here. First of all, Boaz is incredibly kind to Ruth. He's so nice to her. He tells her she doesn't have to go to multiple fields. Just stay in this one. Collect all the food you need here. You can get it here. Normally, the paid workers might give the poor gatherers a hard time and harass them a little bit, but Boaz makes sure that his staff are not going to do that. They're not going to bother her. He even has them go the extra mile and drop a little extra there for her to make it easier for her. Give her more that she can pick up. So she goes home to Naomi. She's got this 30-some pounds of grain, which is an incredible haul for someone who's just sort of gathering the leftovers. Remember, she's not paying for any of this. This is a big deal. She even got to have lunch with the crew and have some of the food that was prepared for them and have enough leftovers that she could then take the nice prepared food, the really good stuff, and take that back to Naomi so she can have some as well. And it's just a really neat ray of sunshine in a story that up to this point has been kind of filled with depressing stuff. Death and loss and tragedy and bitterness. A lot of bitterness, a lot of sadness, a lot of reason to be discouraged. And here is this neat little ray of sunshine. I want to just point out to you two verses. Two important things in verse 11 and verse 12. Boaz is talking here after uh, Ruth says, hey, I'm a foreigner. Why are you so kind to me? And Boaz says, yes, I know. 
but I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. What was so commendable about Ruth? Why was it that it was so obvious she was such a special person? Why did Boaz show such kindness to her? He says, I know how much you've done for others. I know how much you've done for Naomi. I know what you sacrificed. Your father, your mother, the land that you came from. I know that you're following the God of Israel. I know how kind and compassionate and hardworking you have been to care for other people. So I pray that the Lord rewards you. The Lord that you have sought refuge under his wings. The Lord that you have placed yourself under. Yahweh, the God of Israel. I pray that he helps you and blesses you. And you know what's happening here? What's happening here is the same thing that many of us need in our lives today. God is doing something called redeeming Ruth's tragedy. We're just at the start of it, but he's redeeming Ruth's tragedy. None of the stuff that's happening here or is about to happen would have happened if it hadn't been for the dark times Ruth went through. That word redemption is the idea of something bad has happened, but we're going to redeem it. We're going to make it better. We're going to somehow, somehow work to make it uh, all fixed again or even better than it was before. And if there's one thing I know about the character of God, it's that he loves to do this stuff. He loves to take old things and make them new, to take broken things and fix them into something even better than before. In my house, I'm kind of the fix-it guy. So if an appliance breaks, I will be the one, generally speaking, to go in and try to figure out how to tear it apart and fix it. And I might even have spare parts for it because some of those things break on a routine basis. And if there's a piece of furniture that breaks, I'm the one to go down and glue it back together. And if there's a toy that breaks, which is the most common thing in my house, there's actually a special box where the kids know to go put that toy. And at some point over the next few days to few months, that toy will get fixed and it will end up back where, where they need it. And some of these things get broken again and again and again. And eventually, sometimes they just disappear. <laughs> but sometimes, when I do manage to fix something, occasionally, rarely, I will end up making it better than it was before. So one of my kids recently got a stuffed animal, and unfortunately, the head ripped off. And the reason the head ripped off was because there was just this one little dinky thread that was holding the thing in place. So I went and got some heavy-duty stuff and multiple strands of it, you know, and I sewed the thing back together. And so now it's, it's tight. You could yank on that thing, and it's actually better than it was before. might look a little funky, but it's strong. <laughs> Same thing with the dining room chairs. We have a, we have a dining room set. It's in our kitchen uh, area now, but it's, it's a dining room set we've had for like, I don't know, 10, 10 plus years. And those chairs, when they tip over, they just shatter. And the kids have probably broken these. Uh, some of them have bro been broken two or three times. And when that happens, at some point, eventually, I will take them down to the workshop area and I will drill out holes and I'll put dowels in them, I'll put wood glue in them, and I'll clamp them all up together. And they end up being stronger than they were before. It doesn't happen a lot, but occasionally I can fix something that's even better than it was before it was broken. This is what God loves to do with people. He loves to take broken situations, tragedies that happen in our life, and turn them into something amazing that we never could have imagined before. We certainly can't imagine when they're, in, when they're in the middle of the tragedy. But God specializes in taking broken things and making them more amazing than when they were whole. And Ruth was experiencing something here, starting to experience something that all of us need to experience in our lives. And it's the next principle that I want you to write down if you're writing these down. It's when you are faithful and obedient to God. 
you'll start to see him as the master redeemer. When you are faithful and obedient to God, you will see him as the master redeemer. You've probably seen people that will go buy some old beat up piece of furniture and they'll upcycle it and they'll strip it down and they'll take a lot of work and they'll paint it with special paint and they'll put a nice finish on it and they'll make it better than it was before, or at least restore it to something amazing. Or people that will take an old car that's all beaten up and rusted and broken down and you think, man, that thing is just meant for the scrapyard and they'll restore the whole thing so it's a, a beautiful car again and a beautiful antique. That's exactly what God likes to do with people. The tragedy that you think defines your life, the bitterness that you've been identifying with, that is the kind of stuff that God doesn't want you to live in. God wants to redeem that. He wants to take that brokenness and make something better that you can't even imagine. He doesn't want you to live in bitterness. He doesn't want you to live in discouragement, to be defined by what you've lost, consumed by the tragedy that's occurred in your life. He wants to take that and make that something incredible. You may not be able to see it yet. You may not be able to understand it yet. But that's what he's doing. It's not just God's blessings in the, in the middle of the storm, which is what we talked about with Naomi. This is something God's working on to do something much more incredible, to redeem the tragedy that Ruth has been through. And, and God wants to do that in your life. He wants to redeem the brokenness and the tragedy so that you have a future of joy and hope and fulfillment and satisfaction that you might not be able to imagine right now. But that's what God loves to do. Of course, it starts with our souls. It starts with our souls. Jesus came to this earth so that he could redeem our souls, which are broken and are separated from God and full of sin, contaminated by sin. And yet Jesus came to this earth to die on the cross so that he could redeem our soul, pay for it and make it better than it's ever been before. The Bible talks about this in, in Titus. Titus chapter two says, for the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. And we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. And then get this. He says, he gave his life to free us. That's the word redemption. He gave his life to free us, to redeem us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make his very own people totally committed to doing good deeds. This is the best redemption of all. God wants to redeem the tragedy in your life and turn those stories around to something incredible. But first and foremost, he wants to redeem your soul and to see you commit your life to Jesus. And then he'll make you a, a new person transformed to be something completely different, completely better, redeemed as he continues to bring joy and peace and satisfaction into your life that can't come from anything this world can provide. It only comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you've never done that before, if you've never given your life to Jesus, I just want to encourage you to give that some thought today. Pray about that. Pray and ask God, Lord, are you trying to tell me something? Because I've never fully committed to you. Are you trying to tell me through this? This is now is the time I need to give my life to you and just see if God speaks to you today and see what he's doing in your heart today. Because maybe he is drawing you to himself so that he can redeem your soul and then watch and see what he does with the rest of your life as he redeems tragedy after tragedy. He's done it in my life. And turns it into something where he is building it into something incredible for the future. I wonder if you'd just bow your heads with me and pray right now as we go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who loves to redeem, a God who takes incredibly difficult and broken, broken circumstances and makes them into something so much better than we could ever hope or imagine. We don't see it in the moment, but we can look back and see your hand at work. 
I'm sure Ruth at the end of her life looked back and said, that was terrible to go through, but I wouldn't trade it for anything because look what I have now. And that's my prayer for everybody who's in here today. Everybody who's watched online right now, Lord, I pray, God, that you would help us to have that mindset, that understanding, that hope, that assurance that you are a master redeemer, not to hide our needs, not to live in bitterness, but to be faithful and obedient, understanding that you love to take these broken situations of our life and turn them into something beautiful. May we have that kind of confidence in you. And Lord, I pray if there's anybody who is watching or listening to this right now and does not know you as the savior that redeems, that you would communicate to them your reality and your care and your love for them and that they would commit their life to you and confess their sins to you and follow you as their savior. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. In a sense, the awareness that we have of our need, the depth of our need, helps us to connect and is kind of corresponds to the degree of provision that we find in God. If we come here week after week, if we hear a message like this, and we think, well, I don't have a lot of need, then we don't have a lot of provision from God. When we come and we're really aware, as we heard in this message, and as we look in our lives of, of the depth of need that we have, relationally, spiritually, emotionally, physically, uh, when we talk about what the hope is of our lives and where we're going in this world, it's like, wow, we need Jesus, don't we? We need him. And the whole Old Testament, including Ruth, kind of points to the cross. And we're on this side of the cross. And the communion table that we're going to celebrate right now is that center of God's provision in Christ for all of our needs. If you're new at First Free or uh, and haven't had communion with us, I just want to let you know you're welcome to participate in the Lord's Supper here if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, whether you're part of our church family or not. So if you're visiting us from another congregation, another church, we welcome you. Thank you. You can join us. If you're not a follower of Christ, if you're not placed your faith in Jesus, we would just ask that you let the tray pass. We want to Give, you have the integrity of not participating in this special meal that we have as believers, and we pray one day you will, and we would love, as Adam said, to talk to you more about that at some point. If there are any children in here, we just ask that you let your parents or whoever you're with uh, kind of give you the heads up or thumbs up if you're going to take communion, and if not, we'll just go along with that. Uh, we always have our staff ready to help have conversations, parents with children, about communion and ability to participate in this meal. We have, the trays will be passed, and there'll be a stack of two cups. The bottom cup has the bread, and the top cup the juice. Just take a stack. If you need a gluten-free wafer, they're in the middle of the tray. And please wait until everyone has been served, and then we will take them together. So I'm going to pray now and, and kind of in, introduce this concept of God just exploring our hearts and pointing out those needs. And I want you, during this prayer and while the elements are being passed, just let the Holy Spirit saturate your heart with the provision of this meal today. It's not just a ritual for church. It's not a ritual. It's, it's observing and obeying God in a command that Jesus gave to us. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this table, we want to celebrate the, the provision that you have for our needs. And we also want to be very humble, Lord, because this, this isn't just a religious ritual. This is reflecting on the offering of Jesus Christ so that you would meet our needs through him. And it was so costly for him. And we pray that you would, in this moment, just reveal in our own hearts any sin, any brokenness, any 
bitterness, any broken relationships that we have that we need to bring to you so that we can actually encounter you in our hearts and in our lives, in our church, through the provision of Jesus.
It was a really dark time for the disciples when they were in the upper room with Jesus. It was a dark time for Jesus. He was facing the most costly sacrifice that the world's ever known so that we might be able to have a relationship with, with, with God. But it was a dark time that led to a celebration. It was a dark time that led to hope. And that's what the, the Lord's Supper is. And that's what Jesus was trying to communicate to his original disciples and what he wants to communicate to us. Is this is the doorway to hope. He said, this is my body that's given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And then at that same meal, he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And it says in Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. But because that blood is shed, we have forgiveness. Let's drink together, remembering him. Jesus, we can't thank you enough. And not in a, a trite thank you for the beautiful day kind of a thanks, but thank you for the depth of your sacrifice. Thank you that without you, we're hopeless. Without you, we have no way to overcome the bitterness. We have no way to overcome the grief. Without you, we have no way to overcome the sentence of sin that's been imposed upon us. So thank you. Thank you for your provision. Help us to walk in that this week. Help us to walk and to share with others through our actions and our words and our prayers, the wonderful provision that we have in Jesus Christ. And we want you to get all the glory. Amen.